turning your Bibles, and if you want to, just go ahead and turn to Isaiah chapter 14. Isaiah chapter 14, that's kind of where we'll start. I'm going to look at two or three places that we've seen over the ways, and this all ties together. But we're continuing our study of angels and demons. It's a unique study because we're looking at these spirit beings that are all over the Bible, all over the world, our focus. For the last week's number of lessons is on the devil. We started with the good angels, talked about them, and now we've gone to uh, the devil. And then in the last couple of lessons, we'll deal more with the demons and the occult and those kind of things like that. Uh, Who was the devil? The devil was the anointed cherub who guarded the throne of God. And remember, when you hear the word cherub, you, you think of the little drawings of a cute little cheek, you know, look like a little baby with wings and stuff. A cherub, no, they're not. They're powerful beings. They've got the wings and uh, stretching out, and they're very powerful beings. But he was the anointed cherub who guarded the throne of God. In his pride, he fell. He was removed. He now leads the rebellion against God that uh, he got some other angels to go with him. And so there are the good angels, which we sometimes call the elect angels or the holy angels. Then there's bad angels, which we sometimes call demons. And so we're seeing this, and we're looking at uh, the, this, this, this being and we said, and this is what we talked about, we said, what's his plan? His plan is for the unbeliever never to, be, never to trust Christ, never to believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life. That's what he wants. He doesn't care if you're religious. He doesn't care if you go to church. He doesn't care anything. He just do not, he does not want you to believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life. Then as a believer, he never wants you to serve. He never wants you to get going. He wants things to, to mess you up and to bother you and push you off to the side and get you all confused. And so that's really the plan uh, for the believer and the unbeliever. Now tonight, as we're going to see, two truths, or what I call two great truths, two things. One, we're going to see the judgments of Satan. It's more than one. We're going to see what God does, the judgments of Satan, and then how to deal with the devil. Because, and when I say the devil, uh, we have to understand that when these negative and bad things might happen to us, sometimes it's just because it's in a fallen world and sometimes God is allowing it. But there are times when we might say the devil or his demons. And when we say the devil, we don't necessarily mean the devil himself personally, but maybe some of the fallen angels, because the devil can only be in one place at one time. Uh, he's not omnipresent like God is. And so we're going to see what, how, and that's how I say, how do we deal with the devil? How do we deal with the devil as angels and all of those kind of things? And so that's the, the two things we're going to look at. We've seen some things, but how can we as believers have victory? That's sort of the, the key to this whole thing. So with that in mind, let's start with sin. What is sin? We say sin is any act of rebellion. We say it's, uh, it's going contrary to God's word, God's commandments, God's character. Uh, the Bible says sin is lawlessness. It's an act of disobedience. And there's really two ways to look at sin. There's one, it's, it, some people raise this question, are some sins worse than others? The truth is this, no in one sense, that any sin breaks fellowship with God, okay? But some sins have greater consequences and discipline than others. I mean, so when we say, are all sins the same? They're the same in the sense they break fellowship with God, but they're not all the same in the sense that they're, that some have greater consequences than others. And, and so that, that's how it ties together. The key is, is and, and the whole deal is, the, I think, that what seems to be the root cause, and it's, it's, it's uh, pride. Pride is the thing. There seems to be a sin that stands out that seems the root cause of all the other sins, and it's pride. And when we go back and we think about the fall of Satan, what caused the fall of Satan? What caused, what, okay. what caused the fall of man? Pride. And so when, when you sin, it goes back to pride. And so we'll, we'll see how that ties together. And I, I think the key word for us is humility, Proverbs 3.34. Though he scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted. The word afflicted there is really the word for humble, the humility. So he gives grace to the humble person. And we know that God raises up the, the humble person and he puts down the, the prideful person. And that's really the thing. And so we're going we're gonna, to, when we start talking about how do we deal with the devil and Satan and the, the bad stuff like that, We'll talk about the whole idea of pride and humility and those kind of things. So we're going to look at the judgments of the devil and how does God deal with the devil. And then look, dealing with the devil, how do we deal with the devil? So the judgments of the devil, how does God deal with the devil? And then how do we deal with the devil and, and that kind of thing. So I think it's, it's going to be kind of fun. Let's start with the judgments of the devil. He is evil. God has dealt with him and will deal with him. I've got that on your hand. God has dealt with Satan and will deal with him. 
and and he's he's evil. There's been things that's happened in the past. There's going to be things that'll happen in the future. We've been seeing the Book of Revelation on Sunday morning, and we're seeing what's happened. We're seeing the Antichrist. We're seeing uh, the false prophet. We're seeing the devil himself, uh, the serpent of old, as he's called. There, there's all through there, all throughout the Bible. We've seen the devil and what happens to him. One of the great truths, and that's why I love. We're about to get to Revelation chapter 19, and when we get to Revelation chapter 19, Jesus Christ comes as the King of kings and the Lord of lords and comes as the king and rules and then there's a final judgment, so to speak, and then there's the eternal state. And so Jesus is going to win. And we're going to win. It's, it's going to be fantastic. And, and we've already seen this, that, that take heart that Jesus is victorious and because we have believed in Jesus Christ, we have eternal life to be with him forever. So let's think about the judgments. And I'm, I'm going to put, I'll put them all up there. Well, not all of them at one time, but we're going to talk about them and go through the Bible. So here's, here's the first one. And the first First one is that after his rebellion, he was cast from his position around the throne in heaven. So you've turned, uh, have you opened at Isaiah 14, right? And and here's, I just want you to just listen. You don't have to even look at it, but you can. Isaiah 14, he says, How have you fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn? Of the, dawn. the star of the morning, that's Satan. That, he was the, the anointed cherub around the throne of God. And it says, You have been cut down to earth. You have weakened the nations. You have said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. And then if you go all the way at the end of verse 14, he says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. And then what does God say? Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. So God judged Satan way back, probably before there was a world, probably before God created the heavens and the earth. We know that angels were created before the heavens and the earth were created because the angels sang for joy when God created them. We don't know exactly when the rebellion happened, but God removed him from his position. So there's a judgment right there. God already judged him. The second one is he was judged in the garden uh, with the seed of woman. If you remember, and I'll just read this to you. You don't have to turn there. In Genesis chapter 3, if you remember what happened, the Lord said to the serpent, this is three, Genesis 3.14, because you've done this, because of your sin, because you affected mankind. Now think about it. This first one, he affected all of, all of the heavens. He affected the angels. He, he affected all of this when his pride and rebellion and he was cast from his position. Now in the garden, he has affected mankind and he was judged. And notice what God says. Because you have done this. Cursed are you above all the cattle and above every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. And then here's the key. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He will bruise you on the head and you will bruise him on the heel. That's the battle and that's, that's the seed of woman is going to come and crush the serpent. Who is the seed of woman? Jesus Christ. And the serpent, of course, is the devil. And that, so he's going to be judged or that he was judged in the garden. But there's a future judgment coming based on that. Then the third one is he was judged at the cross. You remember in Colossians, we talked about it. Jesus Christ's death and resurrection, paid for sin, conquered death. Let me read for you in Colossians, just real quickly, just so we can remember this. It says, uh, it says, but what he has done, he has forgiven our transgressions. How? Having canceled out the debt by having nailed it to the cross when he, Jesus, disarmed the rulers and the authorities, the rulers and authorities, the angels. He has, he has defeated Satan at the cross. You remember we talked about this over and over. What did, and we, we looked at this when Satan was dealing with Jesus. What did Satan not want Jesus to do? Go to the cross. And what did Jesus do? He went to the cross and he judged Satan at the cross. And basically he paid for the sins of the entire world. And then he rose from the grave to conquer death death for everyone. And I think the greatest truth that we have to understand is everyone's sins have been placed on who? Everyone's sins have been placed on who? Jesus Christ. Everybody. And then everybody is going to be raised from the dead. Is that right? So Jesus Christ has not only paid for all sin, he's conquered death. And that means every human being will exist forever. And, and question? In, so that's okay. What? No, no, no. No, no, this is, has nothing to do with faith. 
This is what Jesus has already done for every person. He has paid for every person's sin, and he has rose from the grave and conquered death. Therefore, every human being will exist forever. So, because all sin is paid for, the issue for salvation is not sin. It's what? Faith. Whoever believes gets what? Eternal life. So it's not, say, turn away from my sins, deal with my sins, try to clean up my act, try to get better. None of that. Sins have already been placed on Jesus Christ. And he says, believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life. Then, because of that, every human being will be raised from the dead. Some will exist forever. With who? With Jesus Christ, because they have what? Eternal life. And they will exist forever with him. And that's called eternal life. And then some will exist forever apart from Christ. That's called the what? The second death. And that's in the lake of fire. Now they're going to exist forever. God, every human being will exist forever. So what we have is Jesus' death and resurrection opened the way that, that by faith alone and Christ alone, you can have eternal life. And so sin's not the issue and death's not the issue. Because everybody's going to live, everybody's going to, I, I used to say everybody's going to live forever. No, everybody's going to exist forever. Some are going to live forever, that's eternal life. Some are going to die forever, which is separation from God. So that's some powerful, powerful truths. That happens at the cross. Isn't that amazing? Think about it. No wonder Satan didn't want Jesus to go to the cross, right? Because it, it did everything. The whole Old Testament, back Adam and Eve, seed of woman, is going to crush the head of the serpent. Well, how's he going to do that? He's going to die on the cross, pay for the sins of, of mankind, and rise from the grave. People always want to just say uh, the, the good, good news message is that Jesus died on the cross. No, the good news message is he died and rose again. You can't leave out the resurrection. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says if there's no resurrection, there's no salvation. Because if Jesus didn't raise from the, rise from the grave, then he didn't pay for sin. He's not who he said he is. Okay, so you got that? Any other, any other input? That was a great point. Because a lot of people say, you, when you believe, you get the payment for sin. No, you get the payment for sin whether you ever believe or not. Payment for sin is already done. What you get is, when you believe, is eternal life. Okay, let's go on a little bit more. Here's the thing. He will be cast out of heaven. This is going to be a judgment, and his time will be short. Revelation chapter 12. We've seen that on a Sunday morning. And um, let me look at the verse I was going to look at. Yeah, uh, verse uh, 12, verse 7 says this. It says, and there was a war in heaven. Who's the war against in heaven? Michael and, Michael and the devil. It says, and there Michael and his angels waging war with the dragon. Now, in the book of Revelation, the dragon is who? He's Satan. He's the devil. And the uh, dragon and his angels waged war. There's going to be a war in heaven. They were not strong enough, and there was no longer a place found in them. And the great dragon was thrown down. The serpent of old is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. This is, this is in the, I think it's in the middle of the tribulation, I think, because we know that he says his time is short. I think that's when he comes, and all this stuff happens with the Antichrist, and the abomination, desolation, and all those kind of things. Then what's going to happen? He will be, Satan will be imprisoned in the abyss during the thousand-year reign of Christ. This is Revelation chapter 20. Listen to this, just so you've got it. I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, holding the key of the abyss, and a ch great chain was in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old. Now, by the way, just to make sure we know who this is, he says, he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil, and Satan. So he got four names. He gives you four names there to make sure you know who we're talking about. And he bound him, how? For a thousand years. And he threw him in the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he could not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he'll be at least for a short time. Now, let me draw something up here just, just for fun, just so you can get this and understand how that works. You remember that on the chart, how we've been drawing it up and been seeing it. Jesus died on the cross to pay for sin. Then we, he ascended back into heaven. We're in what we call the church age. The next event is the rapture. Jesus Christ is going to come get us. Then there's going to be a seven-year time period called the tribulation when the Antichrist, who is a man, Antichrist makes a peace pact with the nation of Israel. 
And at the end of the seven years, Jesus Christ comes back. It's called the second coming. This is the first coming. This is the second coming. This is the coming in the clouds. Second coming to the earth. And he comes and sets up a kingdom for a thousand years. And we see it until the thousand years were finished. In fact, in Revelation chapter 20, in about the first eight verses, he says a thousand years seven times. That it's going to be a thousand year reign. At the end, and while this thousand year reign is going on, where is Satan? He's in abyss. He's, he's, he's down there for a thousand years. That's part of the judgment. He'll be imprisoned in the abyss during the thousand-year reign of Christ. Okay, then we're not through. He's got one more thing. He will be cast into the lake of fire. And listen to this. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. The thousand years are over. Satan is released for a short time. And then here's what it says. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now here's something you've you got to understand. When the kingdom starts, the Antichrist who is the beast, he's the beast in the book of Revelation, and the false prophet, they are both cast into the lake the old lake of fire, the L-O-F, the lake of fire, okay? They're already cast into it. Satan is bound for a thousand years. At the thousand years is over before the great white throne judgment. Satan is then cast into the lake of fire. And he will be there forever. Yes? What now? What? What, the lake of fire? The abyss, oh, it's somewhere on the earth. In fact, there's a big hole. It just says this. Uh, I saw that he came and he had the key of the abyss. We're not sure exactly where that is. And we're not sure it could even be the same abyss where all those demons came up out of there in the book of Revelation. So we don't know where it is. All we know that uh, it uh, is a great chain and it's the bottomless pit, you know. Uh, uh, so wherever it is, where it, and it maybe there's a place on the earth which is a big hole somewhere where those demons are going to come out during the tribulation that we've been seeing on Sunday morning. That may be the place that God throws him in there for a thousand years. We, we don't know. And let me, let me say something a little bit different. The lake of fire may not even be made yet. Because people say, people go to hell. No, they don't. No, they don't. We'll, we'll draw that uh, on the 14th lesson. We're going to draw up a thing called Sheol. And we'll talk about it. It's a gulf. And there's a good side and a bad side. We're going to talk about that. Unbelievers go to a place that we just have named it torments. And they will be there and then raised. So nobody... Best we know right now, no one is in the lake of fire. And the first two people who ever go into the lake of fire are the beast and the false prophet. And then Satan and his angels. And then, we hate to say it, but after the great white throne judgment, if somebody's names are not found written in the book of life, they're cast into the lake of fire. There, there is a question that we saw it in the book of Revelation that people say, well, if the lake of fire is separated from God. God's never around it. No, he's there. God is where? Everywhere. Everywhere. He's even around the lake of fire. But they won't have any kind of fellowship or, or, or anything with him there. That's what makes the lake of fire or hell uh, what it is because they're separated from God. But he's everywhere, and, and we just don't always realize that because I've had some people say, well, if God is everywhere, he's not in the lake of fire. Well, he's not in the lake of fire, but he's at the lake of fire. Yeah, yes. Can he? Once, well, it says this, that it is appointed for man to die once and after that the judgment. So once a person dies, that's where they're going to be. And if they died and they go to the lake of fire, that's it for eternity. Yeah. So that's why it's so important that we share our faith with people. We talk to people. We tell them about Jesus Christ. Because it, when a, if a person dies without Christ, if they've never believed in Christ for eternal life, when they die, they're going to go down here. They're going to be raised from the grave to stand before the great white throne judgment. That's Revelation chapter 20. And if their names are not found written in the book of life, and they're not, they will be cast into the lake of fire. In fact, let me read it. It says, if, this is Revelation 20 verse 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he is thrown into the lake of fire. Yes. Okay. If that is so, then why are they being judged the 
Okay, two things. Number one, we don't know if they're in the abyss. We don't know if Sheol and the abyss are the same thing. They're probably not the same thing. But the question is, what about all these people who are unbelievers and they died and they've gone here, right? Okay, I think that God is going to raise them so they can see that their good works or whatever they did will not gain them eternal life salvation. That's why I think that every person, it says, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall give an account of themselves. That's not just believers. That's every person. Every human being will stand before Jesus Christ. So I think that they're dead. They're going to be raised right here. If they're not found written in the book of life, they're cast into the lake of fire. Yes? Okay. Yeah. We didn't talk about Jesus. And let's say people that go to church, do good works, are generally good people with good intentions, end up in the lake of fire. Every single one of them uh, will, will end up in the lake of fire. None of them will pass the judgment. I mean, and, and if that is so, then why even judge just to make them aware that they. I think it's because, if you remember in one of the passages when some people go before him and say, Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we know you? Didn't we do? And he says, I never knew you. I think part of the judgment is showing them that good works or trying to go to church or trying to be a good person can never measure up for salvation because salvation is a gift. It's not what people do. Well, we don't know, remember, because we said that if anyone responds to God in any way, shape, or form, he's going to get the message to them. Yeah, and that's why he says in Romans that they're without excuse. Yeah, everyone is without excuse. Nobody can stand before God and say, I didn't know. He's going to say, you didn't respond to the revelation that I gave you. Yeah, and what were you going to ask? I was going to say, anyone that knows that believers, their souls go to be with Jesus as soon as they die. Uh-huh. Yeah, when when a non-believer, let's say this is a, let's say this is a believer, and this is a non-believer. When the believer dies, their body goes in the ground, and the soul and spirit goes to be with Jesus. At the rapture, their body is raised to meet them in the air. Okay, an unbeliever dies, their body goes in the ground, they go down here, and then this and this is raised here. See, everybody's going to have a body that will last forever. That's because of resurrection. Oh, it's it's the moment they die, they know. The moment they die, yeah. So uh, that's why uh, should we should we be sharing our faith? Yeah, I mean that's the biggie. And I tell you what, we can do on lesson fourteen too. We can draw up all this kind of stuff and talk about it. We're definitely going to talk about this right here, and we can talk about all of these things in more detail as well. And of course, we can ask, do any questions about angels or demons or anything. Okay, so we've got Satan as judge, right? Wow. And so let's do this real quickly. So he was cast out from his position in, in heaven got, from the, at the throne. He was judged in the garden that the seed of woman is going to crush him. He was judged at the cross when Jesus died and rose again, paying for sin and conquering death. He will be, at, in the future time, we've already seen it in the book of Revelation, but he will have a battle with Michael. He will lose and he'll be kicked out of heaven. He can't go anymore. He can go into heaven right now. We know that. He can go into the heavenly places and be, be with God and accuse us. Then he'll be imprisoned in the abyss for the thousand-year reign of Christ, and then he'll be cast into the lake of fire. Uh, he's evil. He knows. I think he, you know, he's smart enough to know Scripture. He tried to quote it to Jesus. Um, I think he knows his end. I think his plan is what? Don't ever let an unbeliever ever believe because he wants them to take them with him and stop believers from serving and growing because if we're not serving and growing, we're probably not going to be telling people about eternal life. And so that's, that's his plan. Okay, any other questions? Yes, yeah. Okay, I got to come back there so I can hear. So, what about somebody who claims to um, believe in Jesus Christ, but they continue to do really horrible things to people? Okay, so what about a person who claims to believe in Jesus Christ? I, we don't know what that means because a person, if a person says, I have believed in Jesus Christ for eternal life, about the only thing we can accept is, are they telling us the truth? I mean, if, they, if I said to you, I believed in Christ for eternal life, you either say, either he's a liar and he's not believed in Christ, or he has believed in Christ, okay? Then 
What if they don't live right after they believe in Christ? Well, then they're what we call a dis... If, if they have believed in Jesus Christ and they don't live right, they're a disobedient Christian. And when they stand before Jesus Christ, they, he will not say to them, well done, good and faithful servant. According to 1 John, they will be ashamed at his coming. So if a person is a believer and they don't live right, they will, be, they will not have rewards and Jesus Christ will not say, well done, good and faithful servant. Does that help? Okay. Hmm? Of course, yeah. Because the moment you believe, what do you get? How long does that last? Forever. Okay. All right. Should we go on? Here we go. Let's go and let's look at us dealing with the devil. Because this, this will help us, I think. You know, we've mentioned already that the key to dealing with the devil has to be humility. I mean, that's, that's really the key to the whole thing. And so we want to talk about that. We cannot, we cannot win, fight and win. We can't. We must trust our great God and Savior to give us the victory. If we think in the Christian life we're just going to bow up and live strong and powerful. Listen, we got to walk in the Spirit, walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so bottom line is this, humility is the key. Humility is the way that deals with the devil. And we, and we, we trust in God and not ourselves, okay? We trust in God and not ourselves. The key is humility. That's what we've been looking at. So we're to live our lives in humility, not dependent on ourselves, but but on God. And so the key is humility. Now, with that in mind, pride always causes the fall. Always. And we want to see two different passages, and we'll go fairly, you know, I, I think we can go fairly quickly and have even more time for questions or whatever you want to do. But there's two places. So I want you to turn, first of all, to 1 Peter chapter 5. So turn over there. 1 Peter chapter 5. What we see in 1 Peter 5, and, and let me just put this up here. 1 Peter 5, basically 5 through 9. Peter is dealing with leadership. Let me, let me erase this, okay? And if you have questions, we can draw other stuff back up there and just talk. But if you turn to 1 Peter, uh, Peter write, I think Peter writes some hard things sometimes. And, of course, Peter thought Paul wrote some hard things. Because when one of the Peter's letters, Peter says, uh, what Paul writes says sometimes he says, it's hard to understand. <laughs> so if you're studying the Bible and you go, gosh, that's hard to understand. Peter said, yeah, I told you it was going to be hard to understand, right? So it is. So what is Peter? Peter is talking about leadership. And just look at, just get a running start. In chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness in the suffering of Christ. And then he says, here's what elders are to do. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God, exercising oversight, not compulsion. He goes down in verse 3 and says, not lording over, but be examples and all that kind of stuff. Then he gets to verse 6. And in chapter, verse 6, he's going to begin to talk about what's going on and about younger and older and the key is humility and all of these things. And he's going to really say this, uh, the context of the role is leadership. And he's going to talk about God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. And we see this contrast. And so how in the world are we going to deal with Satan and the, the attacks and the battles and everything going on in our lives? Well, look at verse 6. He says, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. So he just starts off by saying, if we want to talk about it, and this is verse 6, here's what he says. He says, humble yourselves to God. Come under the authority and the protection of God. It's humility. When we go through our Christian lives, he says, uh, humble yourselves to God. Come under his authority, his power, all of those kind of things, because this, it's a battle. So how in the world do we, first of all, we say, God is my strength. He's our shield. He's what we stand for. He's, he's the one. So we said, come under, come under his authority. Come under his power. Say to God, I can't live the Christian life myself. Remember, let's draw it up. Here we are. We have a what? A body. What else do we have? Soul, a conscience, a flesh. Then we have what we call the human spirit or the part that's been born again. And then what do we have? The Holy Spirit. Listen, if we yield to this, we always sin. 
We, the soul relates to the world around us. The con- conscience tells us right from wrong. And the flesh is always a natural bent to sin. Human spirit is the part that can relate to God. This is the part that is born again when it talks about being a born again person. This is the new creation in Christ. And then here's God, the Holy Spirit inside of us. We have a battle going on. If we yield it all to this, we will always sin. We will never have victory. If we yield to the power of the Holy Spirit, this is Romans chapter 6, when he says, stop letting sin reign in your mortal body, but live in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's when the Bible says, walk in the Spirit, and you'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And when he says, be filled with the Spirit. So here's the battle. And we have to come to the realization that you cannot live the Christian life in your power. We have to live the Christian life in what? God's power. Okay, I'll tell you a story. I, 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 you know, I didn't ever go to church. I wandered into the Bible study and believed in Christ for eternal life, and I was saved and saved forever. But I didn't understand about the Christian life. I didn't understand anything. I'd never gone to church. So I would say to myself, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live for Jesus today. I'd get up, and I'd start, and I'd, I was on college camp, and I would mess up. I'd sin. Then I'd say, I'm gonna, and I got to a point one time, and I said to myself, I wish... This sounds stupid. I said, I wish I'd never heard about this because I can't live this out. I can't live good enough for God. And I was thinking that you live the Christian life in your own power. I didn't understand that it's the power of the Holy Spirit through us. And when I got a little further down the road and I began to understand that, I began to realize that I wasn't responsible to live the Christian life because in my own power I sinned. I was responsible to walk in the Spirit, to yield to the Spirit, to understand the Bible, to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, to put God's Word in my life, and to, to uh, as we says, to stop the whole idea of, uh, I beseech you, brother, offer your life as a living sacrifice, and no longer being conformed to the world, but being transformed. That changed everything for me. And so a lot of Christians think, I'm just going to make it. But they can't do it because they're not yielding to the power that's in us. We're living to the flesh. So he starts off by saying, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And when you humble yourself, what will he do eventually? What does it say? He'll exalt you. What does he say? He'll exalt you at the proper time. When you live for Jesus Christ, how is he going to exalt you? He's going to say what? Well done. Come on, get this those cities are for you. Me? Yeah, you. That's what he's going to do. So watch what he goes on to say. So he's talking about humble yourself. And then he says, okay, what about going through this life then? How do we make it? Verse 7. Casting all your cares, your anxiety on him. Why? Okay, so there are issues and problems and trials and temptations and everything. And what does he say? Give them to me. Give them to God. Give them to Jesus. Say, Lord, I can't deal with this. I want to live for you. I can't deal with it. So I'm giving you my cares. I'm casting my cares upon you. He wants to fight the battle for you. Now then he's going to get, he's going to get right down where it is. Because so far at this time, all we've been talking about is, okay, I'm trying to live the Christian life and I can't live it in the flesh. So I have to humble myself to God and say, God, I can't live it. You live it. And when I have issues and problems, I really give them to you. How do you feel when you're anxious for nothing but everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, you let your requests be made known to God? What happens? The peace of God which passes all understanding will do what? Guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. That's what it's all about. That's casting your cares upon him. So we're not not through. So there we go. And then look at verse 8. He says, be of sober spirit and be on the alert. Now he's telling you, watch out. Watch out. Now, we've already said, listen, you say to God, I can't do it. You say to God, I want to walk in the Spirit. You say to God, I'm casting all my cares on you. And then he says, watch out, though. Watch out for what? What's going on? What, what am I watching out for? That's casting all your cares. What am I watching out for? Well, be of sober spirit. Watch out. Be on the alert. Why? You have an adversary. Who is he? The devil. And he prowls around like a what? A roaring lion seeking someone to what? To devour. He wants to destroy you. And so in the midst of saying, I'm living for Jesus Christ, and I I know it's not me, and I know he's the power, and I cast all my cares upon him, God says, be careful, though. you got an enemy out there, 
He would love to destroy you. He goes around like a, a roaring lion. And so he says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert, your adversary. What is the adversary? Someone who's what? Against you. Your adversary. And then he describes who it is. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, he's going to say something in the next verse that we have to say, okay, what does he mean? How does, how does, this, how does this work? And, and, uh, and so I think it's the, uh, I'm just looking at the notes, I think it's the top of the next page. He says, but, but do what? Resist the devil. Oh, resist the devil. Uh, now, look what he says. But resist him firm in your what? Faith. What is faith? Faith is taking God at his word. What did he tell you already? Cast your cares upon me because I care for you. Walk in the spirit. You'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You can't do it in your power. Cast your cares. Watch out. Be careful. There's somebody out there trying to destroy you. So what do you do? He says you resist the devil. Uh, he says but resist him being firm in your faith. And so we've got to know that. Resist the devil. How? Put firm in the faith, taking God at his word. It's in humility, resting in God's power. Now, you don't always know how you're being attacked. You, you don't know. There's things that happen and you just don't know. But he's out there and he's an enemy. And it may be his angels. And it actually could even be him. We've always said that if the devil is actually after you, at that point in time, you're probably the most important person in the world. Because the devil can only be at one place at one time. And, but he has all kind of demons and they're everywhere. And so even, even in these verses when he says the devil, it could be the devil and his angels. It could be his part there. And so he says, but resisting, being firm in the faith, knowing the same experience of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are all around in the world. He says, if you suffer, just remember a lot, <laughs> a lot of believers are doing what? They're suffering. It's a fallen world. It's a world controlled by who? Who is the prince of the power of the air? Satan. He's controlling this world system. And so in the book of 1 Peter, he says, listen to me carefully. Humble yourselves. Understand you can't do it so that he can exalt you at the right time. Cast your cares upon him because he cares for you. Be careful. You've got an enemy out there who would love to destroy you. So you've got to resist him. Now we're going to see in just a few minutes, how do you resist him? We're going to, see, we're going to go to the book of James and then we're going to go to the book of Ephesians. And we're going to see how in the world do we resist this devil. Because he doesn't he didn't give it all here. Peter just says, resist the devil. <clears throat> so we'll see what happens. And so in humility, resting in God's power. So that's the powerful aspect. So we humble ourselves, trust in him, being alert. I think I may have that there. Yeah, humble ourselves, trust in him, being alert, resist, resisting, being firm in the faith. Listen, how are you going to stand and... Take God at his word if you do not know his word. You got to know it, right? Why do we have a class like this? So we can know the Bible. Why do we have a 2-2 and a 4-12? Why do we teach the books of the Bible verse by verse, passage by passage on Sunday morning? Why do we, do, why do we take certain subjects in the grow group? Why are we taking these things? What's the purpose? So that you'd know the scripture, that we'd know what to stand for, that we could stand firm in the faith, that we could believe, know what we believe and why we believe it. So bottom line, he basically says, get under the hand of God, be alert, and resist the devil. Now, you, we could stop right there and we could say, well, I need more information. Because how do I resist the devil exactly? Well, we're going to see. So let's turn over to the book of James, James chapter 4. So we're in First Peter to just turn a little bit back to the book of James. And we're going to see the, the famous part when we get there. And it always starts in the same way. What would we say is the key to living this Christian life? How does it start? What do we do? It's humility, right? Look at James chapter 4, verse 6. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the what? But he gives grace to the? humble. Now, he's going to tell us how do we deal with these issues, okay? And so he says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It always goes back to the same aspect, humility, humility, humility. So now what is he going to say? Look at the next verse. Submit, therefore, to God, resist the devil, 
and he will flee from you. So what is the first? We talked about back over here. He said resist, right? How do you resist? What does he say? What does the verse say? Draw near to God, right? Submit to God. What does submit to God mean? What does that mean? Come under his what? Come under his authority. Come under his protection. Come under everything. What does he say? Cast your cares upon me because I what? I care for you. And so here James says it in a little bit different way. He says what you need to do is submit to God. Put yourself under God's protection. He says I'm going to take care of you, right? Put yourself under God's protection. And then look what he says. Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil. There's resisting. And what happens? What happens when you resist the devil by drawing near to God? He, he will leave you alone. Let me tell you something. The devil, he doesn't care anything about you, but he's not going to handle God. He can't. And when God, when you draw near to God, because that's what the next verse says, draw near to God and he will do what? Draw near to you. Listen, that's the only way that we can do this. Resist the devil and he will flee. He's not. Listen, I've got this right here. Uh, submit to God's humility. We come under God's power. Resist the devil, he will flee. The devil is not afraid of us, but he can't deal with God. And so we have, the only way we're going to have victory is there. And that's why in verse 8, what does he say? Draw near to God. If you got that, you don't have to write down every word. But the idea is humility, resisting the devil. Uh, and, and, he's, and we're going to see more in just a minute. We're not through. We're going to actually see how in the world can you defend yourself from the devil. We're going to see it in just a minute. Okay, everybody got this pretty much? Yes? Okay. So then James writes, so draw near to God, come under his authority, his power, he will draw near to you, and the bond will be the victory. That idea brings the victory. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. And then he talks about cleanse your hands, your sinners, purify your heart, be double-minded. He's basically saying you better be in fellowship now when you do this. This is how it all works. So the bottom line is, what we have seen over and over, is the only way to have victory and um, let me write people, drop, write that down. Just draw near to God, come under his authority. He is the power, he is the strength. So when we go out these doors, and see here we say, we're, we're safe. Well, we are, but who's in this room? What, what beings are in this room that we can't see? Good beings and bad beings. And they're there, and they're there, they're there all the time. So look at this. The way to have victory over the devil is to submit to God, to come under his authority, to draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. And that's how you resist the devil. Now, we've got something else, one more thing to go that's going to be the key to the whole thing. And so we've seen the bottom line thing is you've got to understand you're not the power. You come under God's authority. You say, God, take care. You cast your cares upon him. You go in the power of the Holy Spirit. You, you realize there's an enemy coming after you. You submit yourself to God. You draw near to God. He will draw near to you. And the devil will, what happens? He will flee from you. He can't be with God. He cannot fight God. He knows that. He cannot win. He cannot fight God. And that takes us to one other thing. And I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 6. Okay? And this is how you do it. We've seen, and you say, well, I, I got the information. I'm supposed to draw near to God. I'm supposed to resist. I'm supposed to stand strong. I'm supposed to do all of those things. I'm supposed to let it be God's power, not mine. But how do you resist him? How do you do that? Well, here's the key, and that the key is the armor of God. And we've talked about it many times. Uh, many of you have studied it's Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. We're going to talk about it briefly, and I'll, I'll go very quickly through it. I want you to see the armor of God, and this is power. Be strong. And, and notice Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Everybody there? Look what this says. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Who? Who? It's his power. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. It's his power. It's God's power is not ours. Do you remember back over here? What did he say? You come to me. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not your strength. It's not your power. You cast all your cares. You come under my authority. You trust me. You take me at your word. You stand strong. You resist the devil. You draw near to me. I'll draw near to you. And so he says, what you've got to do is you've got to stand. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. He does not say, be strong in your might. Be strong in your strength. He doesn't say that look what he goes on to say in verse 11 put on the full armor of God why so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil how are you going to resist the devil how are you going to stand 
firm. What does he say? Put on the what? The armor. The armor of God. Okay? So we're going to look at the armor of God, and we're going to look at it quickly. Most of you have studied this. Now, he, 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 never, he, he talks about this a lot. In verse 12, what does he say? Our struggle is not against what? It's not against people, but it's against the what? The rulers, the powers, the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Who is that? That's the devil and his angels. Who is the battle that we're fighting? The devil and his angels. It's not people. It's the devil and angels. So here we are trying to go through life. Who controls the world system? Satan. And he controls the world system. Affects our flesh. He's battling us. And we have to say, no, 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 no. It's not me. It's God in me. I cast my cares upon him. I'm going to live by, under his authority. I'm going to draw near to God. He's going to draw near to me. I'm going to live by the word of God. I'm going to stand strong. I'm going to put on the what? Full armor of God so that I can stand firm. Look what he says. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand firm against the seams of the devil. It's not against flesh and blood. And then he says it again in verse 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you'll be able to do what? We talked about how in the world do you resist the devil? How do you do it? Look what he says. Put on the full armor of God so you'll be able to do what? resist in the evil day and having done everything stand firm now i want to teach you something that that you know you know we are not going to fight the devil the armor of god and resisting the devil is drawing near to god and standing firm it is not going after the devil it is not attacking the devil i know there's all kind of there's some groups out there that say we're going to go conquer satan and everything Look, the best thing to do is get as close to god as you can get put on the armor of god and stand strong because he's coming after you you don't have to go after him Okay, and so that, this is the key. It's the strength and his power, his might, put on the full armor of God. And that's, I think, verse 13 says, he, the second time he gives us the charge, take up the full armor of God. By the way, there is a Greek word. There was a word for armor, and there was another Greek word for full armor. And this has the idea of saying, put on everything you're supposed to put on. Listen, when I used to coach football, we, you know, we, you didn't put a guy and say, here's your helmet, here's your shoulder pads, you don't need any thigh pads. Uh, no, and, and you don't really need any shoes. Now, you'd go, that's ridiculous. I, where, what if they hit me right there? i got to have thigh pads, right? You know, they don't, they don't wear near as many pads as they used to wear, right? I mean, we know when, when I was in junior high, you had hip pads, thigh pads, knee pads. You had a thing for your leg. You had shoulder pads which stuck out about this far. And it, now shoulder pads are about this far. And they, most, most guys down there don't even wear knee pads anymore. But... What we would say is this, you better put on the whole uniform. What God is saying is, you better put on the whole armor. And what is that armor? And we're going to go really fast through it just so you can see it. Most of you have studied this a lot of times in your life. So we're going to give you the armor of God. In verse 14, he says, stand firm. That's what verse 14 says. Stand firm. We're not attacking. We're standing firm. And then here's what he says. Put on the belt of truth. Put on the belt. Now picture yourself looking at a soldier. Where was Paul when he wrote this letter? This is Ephesians. Where was Paul when he wrote this letter? Do you know? He was in prison in Rome. And guess what? He was chained to a Roman soldier all day long. And about every six hours, a, Roman, a new Roman soldier would come and be chained. And so Paul couldn't leave, but the Roman soldier was chained there. And what do you think Paul said to that Roman soldier for six hours? <laughs> he was, you know, every, and, and it says... A great number of the soldiers believed in Jesus Christ. That's what it says. He told them about Christ, and many of them believed in Christ. But you can imagine Paul writing this letter to the church at Ephesus, and he says, okay, let's put on the armor of God. Let's see. Let's put on the belt of truth. There's the belt. And so the truth, the bottom line, the belt of truth, the belt held everything together. In fact, as you got ready to go fight, you had this belt thing, and your sword went down in there, and something else went down in there, and everything you needed, actually, because if you took your belt off, everything would fall off. And if you were going to run, you know, they, the, some of them, their things came down here, they would tuck it up, and they would put the, the bottom of their thing in their belt so they could run without tripping on it. That's what was called gird up your loins. So you could run without tripping. And so the belt was the, really a key thing. What is this? The belt of what? 
the belt of truth. Think about that, the belt of truth. Truth holds everything together. The belt holds everything together, and the truth is the key. What is the untruth? You know what Satan says? Sin won't hurt you. God doesn't love you. Works can save you. That's not truth. The belt of truth. And the truth, the truth holds everything in place. The truth is found in the Word of God. There's God's Word and God's truth. It all goes together. What's the first thing you're going to need as you're going to stand against the devil? The truth of the Word of God. Is that right? And, and not lies, not being tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but you know what you believe and why you believe it. Every one of us in this room, you know what you believe, right? You know what you believe about the salvation message. You know what you believe about the Bible. You know what you believe about Jesus Christ. You've got to stand strong. So that's the truth, okay? So what does he say? He says, therefore, stand there having uh, girded your loins with the truth. And then here's the second one, having put on the what? Breastplate of righteousness. Now, in that day and time, let's see, the word righteousness, and I just want you to understand something, and I'm, I'm going I'm to erase all this, but righteousness is what God gives to us. We're not righteous people, but the moment you believe in Jesus Christ, He actually gives you His righteousness, okay? That's called imputation. The Bible says we're justified by faith. Justified means to be declared righteous. So we get God's righteousness. So He says, put on the, hold on to the what? The breastplate of righteousness. And that's the part that protects to them and something hit them in the chest somebody tried to you know that thing was would block it off well we have the righteousness of God okay we have it those who have trusted in Christ who have believed in Christ get God's righteousness Romans 4 5 Philippians 3 9 okay so how do we resist so far we have the truth and we have what God's righteousness let me ask you a question how many of you in this room are perfectly righteous before God raise your hand if you're perfectly righteous before God you are, every one of you. If you believe in Jesus Christ, what does he give you the moment you believe? His righteousness. Philippians 3, well, let me put it back. Philippians 3, 9, having been, been found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own, but the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Every one of us in this room are righteous. You put on the armor of God and you say, I'm what? I'm righteous. There's the third. Okay, so here's the third one. The shoe of the gospel of peace. Notice what he says. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace is the salvation message. And for a soldier in that day and time, the shoe was special. Because Roman soldiers actually had something like cleats. They had a bottom, and then they put these things so they could stand firm. Sort of like a person with cleats doing athletics today. So that they could stand, and they could stand strong, and they could move. And so there's two aspects of it. So they wouldn't fall down, but that they could move out because the gospel of peace, how, how do you spread the gospel of peace? You go where they are. As you are going, make disciples. The gospel is the, the good news message of Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. You remember, he died and rose again. Whoever believes in him will never perish but have what? You know, today people announce a good life message instead of a good news message. So what have we seen? Put on the truth, the belt of truth. Put on the breastplate of righteousness and be righteous. Get, take the gospel, the gospel message. Be ready to go out with it. And then what does he say? The shield of faith is verse 16. And he says, uh, in addition, taking the shield of faith. In that day and time, I think, uh, let me put this up right here. There were two kinds of shields. There's, you've seen the ones, that, the little round one, and then the, the big one. You've seen them in the movies. This is the big one. This is the one that when they started shooting the arrows, you got down like this. And, and because you, you were protected by the shield of faith. And the shield of faith is taking God at his word. That's what, that's what faith is, remember? Just remember this. When people start saying about faith, faith is taking God at his word. It is believing the truths of the scripture. Uh, a guy by the name of Philip Bliss wrote a song. And the first line of his song is this. Uh, <clears throat> My faith has found a resting place, not in device or creed. My face has found a resting place. It is in the written word of God. Wow. Wow. So, we stand in truth, in righteousness, in the gospel, in faith. What's next? The helmet of salvation. I'm going to show you something really fast in just a second. But notice this. this and verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation. When he says the helmet of salvation, when we talk about salvation you understand that there are three salvation, three aspects of salvation. Now, we're not, we're not talking about physical deliverance because the Bible uses salvation for physical deliverance, especially in the Old Testament all the time. We're talking about eternal life aspect. So there's three aspects. There's the thing called justification, sanctification, and glorification. This is the three aspects of salvation. And this is past tense. This is present tense. And this is 
future tense. You have been saved. By grace, you have been saved through faith. Christian life, we are being saved. It sounds weird, but we are being saved. That's the Christian life. And then this is the future glorification. So this, this is eternal life. This is Christian life. This is future life. Okay? I mean, when we start looking at all this, 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 this is by faith. This is by faithfulness. And this is God's faithfulness. And this is by grace. And this aspect, and I, I put it in a, a different way, this is by works. And this is for eternity. This, this is, uh, uh, this is the, the whole idea of eternal life salvation. And this is rewards. And this is when you get the rewards. I mean, this is such a beautiful thing. And so when he says the helmet of salvation, he's not just... And, and by the way, this is a gift. And this is earned. And this is where you get the rewards. So the bottom line is, when he says the helmet of salvation, he's, uh, as I teach in the 2-2 in the class, I think it's lesson 9... That God has saved us not only past, present, and future. He's justified us, He's sanctified us, and He will glorify us. And they all go together. If you've never put that together, that will put the Bible together for you. Okay? That's one of my favorite things. I have this friend that, that uh, he's, he's amazing. And he took the class a long time ago. I mean, we're talking 20-something years ago. And when we got to the lesson on the three aspects of salvation, he had never heard that before. And all of a sudden, it clicked. And he went, Wow! Because when you hear a verse that says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, there's some people who go, oh no, I've got to work for my salvation. No, no, we're talking Christian life there. You've got to look and see, is it a past tense? Is it a present tense? Or is it a future tense? You know, over here in Romans it says, our salvation is nearer than it's ever been before. Well, we got this salvation. We're working on this salvation. That's the future salvation. So it's just beautiful how it all fits together. So that's the helmet of salvation. And then here's the one. And, and a lot of people see every one of these is defensive, right? Shield, breastplate, belt, shoes. Watch this one. Oh, hey, that's, that's the three things. I'm not going to go. We're going to. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. By the way, that sword is the word makaira, and it, it's a two-edged sword. The Romans, when the Romans went and fought people, they had this sword called a makaira. It was only about that long, and it was two-edged, and they could just cut people to pieces. And people had these long kind of swords that they swung and missed, and the Romans would go, choo -choo. it was over. They conquered the world with that sword. This is the word here when he says the sword of the Spirit. It's Makaira. It's the two-edged sword. It's the same as Hebrews 4.12. The word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. That's it. And so this is, this is it. It's defensive. By the way, this is defensive. This is not offensive. When the devil tempted Satan, I mean, when the devil tempted Jesus, what did Jesus use? The word of God to defend himself. So... The, that's the two-edged sword. So we've got to have the truth because he's a liar. We've got to have the righteousness because God made us righteous. We've got to have the gospel to take the message. We've got to take God at his word. We've got to understand that God has saved us totally. And we've got to know and apply the word. Now, we're not through. There's one other thing. And it's in verse 18. With all prayer and petition, praying at all times in the Spirit, with this in view, to be on the alert with perseverance and petition for all the saints. The last thing we do is pray. We put on the armor of God and stand there and stand strong and pray. And I've got at the bottom of your page, in humility we stand strong in God's power, drawing near to God, resisting the devil. He will flee from us. I put, this, uh, put on the armor, pray at all times, and look at this right here. Submit to God, draw near to God. Resist the devil as you put on the armor of God with prayer. And what happens to the devil when you put on the armor and you draw near to God? He flees. He runs away. So this is powerful. So how are you going to deal with the devil? You can't do it in your own power, right? So you have to say to God, I'm coming on the armor. I've got, I got the truth. I got the righteousness. I got the shield. I got the helmet. I got the shoes. I, I've got the word of God. I got the sword. I'm ready to stand. He doesn't say go fight. He says stand strong. And what do we do? We draw near to. He will draw near to us. What happens to the devil? He flees. That's the only way you're going to have victory in a fallen world. So. Uh, let me give you some quick applications, and then if we have time, we'll do some questions or something. But first of all, Satan has been and will be judged by God. 
we saw those five, five or six deals that where we show how he got, you know, in the garden with, and then at the throne and at the cross. And he's going to be thrown in the pit. He's going to be thrown in the lake of fire. He's been kicked out of heaven. So Satan has been and will be judged by God. Second, the key to victory is trusting in God, not self, humility, not pride. You cannot win the battle in your own power. We cannot win the battle in our own power. So it's humility, not pride. And then here's the, are you ready for the third thing? You don't have to write every word out, but the third thing is put on the armor of God in order to resist the devil and stand. That's the only way. Put on the armor of God so you can stand. I'm going to put, uh, I've got, I think, four things to, to put up, and I think they all come up at one time. If you want to write them in there, it, it's very simple. No one apply the Bible. Take God at his word, know the clear message, and be men and women of prayer. That's how you, when you put on the armor of God. So you've got to know the Bible and, and trust God. That's faith. And, and go with the good news message and be men and women of prayer. That's the only way that it'll work. And this is our battle. And so from this night on, you have to say to yourself, well, how, do I, how do I live in a fallen world that Satan controls the world system that affects my flesh and my flesh affects me. How can we have victory? Well, we have to say, I can't do it. It's God through me. I'm going to put on the armor of God. I'm going to get as close to God as I can. I'm going to stand firm. He's going to draw near to me. I will resist the devil by putting on the armor of God. And what happens when you resist the devil? He flees. He runs away.